This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina. I'm from Prague. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji, and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki, and I live in Paris. Hi, I'm Brian, and I'm from New York. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Ola Banji. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Liki. Today, we are honored to have Hank Rogers on our show. Hank is an iconic figure in the gaming world as he introduced Tetris to Japan and turned the game into an international sensation. And his work helped cement the Game Boy's position in the market and contributed Tetris to becoming one of the most renowned game ever. And his story is featured in the 2023 Apple TV Plus film Tetris, which is a remarkable tale, and we highly, highly recommend our listeners check out that gripping movie. I watched it last week, and I really, really loved it. But today, our focus will be Ken Current Endeavors, as he now leads about 10 companies dedicated to combating climate change and promoting renewable energy and space exploration. Welcome, Hank. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Well, good afternoon for me because I'm talking from Paris. It's, it's morning in Hawaii. It's morning oh. in Hawaii. <laughs> so, Hank, your journey from pioneering in the gaming industry to being a passionate advocate for sustainable energy is nothing short of remarkable. Can you share with us what sparked this significant career shift? What was the catalyst that led you to devote your energy to fighting climate change? Uh, so, so the catalyst was a heart attack. I sold a company and a month after I sold it, I found myself in an ambulance on the way to a hospital with a heart attack. And uh, uh, first thing I said, is, you got to be kidding me. I haven't spent any of the money yet. The second thing I said is like, no, I'm not going. I still have stuff to do. And I, I decided in the ambulance that if I had to hold my breath for 15 minutes, I would. And uh, I have two stents, no problem. I, I obviously survived. My doctor said, don't change anything. But I got to thinking about what did I mean by stuff. And so I worked it backwards from the end of my life. I said, what is it that's going to upset me if I didn't do something about it by the end of my life? And um, so I, I searched for my bucket list. And the first item came to me in the back of the newspaper. It was an article in the back of the Hawaii newspaper which said, oh, by the way, we're going to kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century. And what's causing that is ocean acidification. What's causing that is carbon dioxide. What's causing that is we are. So I said, okay, that's it. First mission is to end the use of carbon-based fuel. So that's how I got onto my mission. Hmm. That's very interesting. But you all you look in great shape today so yeah yes <laughs> he's showing his arms yeah so in in one of your past interviews or 
perhaps in the movie, I can't remember, but you spoke about how you achieved such great success with Tetris and navigated through the intricacy of the Soviet system. And you said, after all, people are just people. That is something I remember. And this insight served you well yeah. then. And I'm curious if this has also guided you in your current endeavor and your activism. And uh, are there other skills or insights or principles from the time in the gaming industry that serve you well in the current work fighting climate change? Well, you know, the, the term people are just people um, refers to everybody in the world. You know, everybody in the world either has children or was a child once upon a time. And uh, so everyone in the world must be concerned about climate change because we can see it happening. You know, I would say like 10 years ago or so, we, there still could be people who say, oh, no, this is not happening or it's, an, it's a natural thing or something like that. But I don't know today with everything that's going on, the heat waves, the torrential rain, uh, the droughts, uh, all of that, people are, have to be waking up. They can't just like say, well, this is not happening. It's, it's happening. Fires. And so when people, when I say people are just people, people have to eat. <laughs> yeah. They have to, they have to have clothes. They have to have a shelter. Uh, they have to have all these basic needs. And one of the basic needs is oxygen or, or a, a how can I say, an environment that we can survive yeah. in. That's a basic need. And if we move this world away from being an environment that we can survive in, then we will not survive. And that has to be something that everybody in the world should be thinking about, if not for themselves, for their children or for their children's children. We have this obligation. Yeah. That, that, is, that is really precisely the concept of carbon sessions because the climate change is a, it's something that is touching everybody, all of us, people, everybody. So that's why we want to have everybody involved in this conversation. Mm. Even the people that run the oil companies or the electric companies, they have children too. Yes. Now, at some point, they're going to have to... It's like if you live in Beijing and you have a lot of money and you have sure. children... You don't want to have the sky be, you know, where you can't see the sun yeah, or where you have to breathe that stuff. I mean, you can see other cities in the world where we've already made that, that change. And now we have to sort of have a worldview and make that change for the entire planet, which is kind of why it becomes a little bit more complicated because people don't think globally. They think locally. So, Hank, I, I'm curious, what is there about people from the Netherlands, because that that's where you're from originally, is that right? Yeah, I'm originally from the Netherlands, <laughs> but I left Netherlands when I was 11 years old. But there seems to be something about the, the genes of people from the Netherlands. There seem to be people who were involved in change and, and innovation, and they think in a different, seem to think in a different way. The number of significant people who've got roots back into the Netherlands is, is quite amazing. And you've taken the position where you were, obviously there was the, 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 the heart attack and the, the whole kind of change fixing the planet in some way. How do you get involved in that? And you've, you've branched into all kinds of things with your businesses. So is there something that holds them all together? I mean, climate change is obviously the answer to that. But is there something that brings the different strands of those different businesses that, that works for you? 
Yeah, so climate change is, is frankly speaking, is just one of the things that need to be fixed about yeah. the world. <laughs> you know, it may be the biggest and the most important, but it's not the only thing. You know, we have to solve plastic in the ocean, for example. I mean, there's all kinds of other things. And so I think that the thing that ties them all together is that we have to work together to create a world in which humanity and nature live in harmony. And that's the overriding concept between all of my, my blue planet. I just counted them. I have, I have so many blue planets now. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, of course, the original one is, is Blue Planet Software, which takes care of Tetris. And, you know, in that, in that one, that's the oldest one. It predates my switch to, uh, how can I say, to fixing the environment. But still, even then, I vowed I would never work on a game that I didn't want my children mm -hmm. to play. So that, that, the beginning of that thinking. So then Blue Planet Foundation is working on to ending the, the uh, uh, use of carbon-based fuel in Hawaii. And we did uh, our biggest claim to fame is we passed a mandate in 2015. We're the first state to have a mandate of 100% renewable energy. Right. Uh, then I have Blue Planet Research, which is my ranch where we actually study living off-grid. We disconnected from the utility. Uh, to study what it, what it meant, um, you know, and this is uh, energy storage, that kind of stuff. So that's what we study. That turned into a business, energy storage business. So we have Blue Planet Energy. So the, those are the, let's see, foundation. Oh, and then, of course, the, the big one, the, the Blue Planet Alliance. The Blue Planet Alliance, I was satisfied with doing things in Hawaii, but Hawaii is just not going to solve the world's mm. problem not from Hawaii. If, if we're perfect in Hawaii, other places are still not happening. 20 other states, by the way, in the U.S. copied our legislation. So we have that movement in the U.S., but it hasn't been happening outside the U.S. So we start, I started a new organization called the Blue Planet yeah. Alliance. And there's a couple of things we do. One is we ally with other NGOs that have similar, well, uh, fix the environment kind of missions. So we sign an MOU that basically all it says is that we agree to work together to create a world in which humanity and nature live in harmony. And uh, we're approaching 100 NGOs now. Uh, but the other thing is, is we're working with island countries to get them to go through the same transition that we got Hawaii to go through. Mm. And last year, we focused on Palau, Tonga, Tuvalu, um, and this year we've got uh, seven or eight other countries that are going to sign All up this year. the countries. At either climate, at either climate mm. week or uh, at the COP. Blue Planet Alliance is, is basically where my focus is right now. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's amazing. And, and I guess you've got that kind of profile that allows you to bring those people together to, to kind of do the things you're doing, but also draw the people in, which is so good to, to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So it's partially what I'm doing, which is, you know, goes back to my original mission of ending the use of carbon-based fuel. But when somebody joins the Alliance, we take their mission and make it one of our missions. So all of the, all of the NGOs missions are part of the Alliance mission. At the end of the day, I'd like us to fix everything. You know, yeah. the, the, the concept is that everything that we've broken uh, in nature or everything that we've stolen from nature 
we need to give it back and we need to fix it. Um, we have the money. <laughs> we definitely have the money and we have the technology. All we need is the will. Mm. And that will just comes in the form of somebody somewhere making a decision that uh, I'm going to do this. You know, I've made my decision. I'm going to use the end the use of carbon-based fuel. I don't care what your decision is as long as it's a decision and as long as you stick to it. Um, so the, the United Nations is, is on its uh, SDGs, the, the Sustainable Development Goals, and they go from 2015 to 2030. Well, I would like the next 15 years, 2030 to 2045, to be the, the RDGs, the Regenerative Development mm. Goals. Yeah. It's where we fix everything that we've yeah. broken and, and so on. And they end in 2045, which is the 100th anniversary of the United Nations. So that is a great date for us to fix everything by. I love that idea. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Hank. This conversation has been incredibly fantastic. It's so great to learn about your passion and all the amazing things that you're doing. I'm particularly interested in space and everything that has to do with it. You have a project called the High Seas project. So can you tell us about that? I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I've seen a bit of some of your interviews and how you are passionate about space and everything that's going on there um, enough to invest and really pour out your energy innovation into it. So maybe we can start with what is High Seas? What is that project about? When did it start? What's it doing now? So High Seas is uh, an analog. High Seas stands for the Hawaii uh, Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. It's a facility on Mauna Loa at 8,200 feet uh, elevation where we study living on other planets. Uh, the first five years, we did uh, NASA missions, and they wanted to find out how people get along on long missions on Mars. So the way the mission works is six people stay in a 1,200 square foot dome or 100 square meters uh, dome. And if they go outside during the mission, they have to wear a spacesuit. And if they communicate with the outside world during a, a Mars mission, we delay that signal 20 minutes each way. So for all intents and pur uh, purposes, these people are, are talking to each other for long periods of time. We did five missions, four, mi four months, four months, eight months, 12 months and eight months. Um, <clears throat> we learned a lot. We learned, uh, you know, for example, crew selection is crucial. <laughs> we, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they go to answer the questionnaires on the way to crew selection, they lie. They lie and they do whatever they want. They, they say whatever they want to say so they can get on the crew. And that's it. You know, <clears throat> so I, I think that maybe that, that's one thing that all of the astronauts have in common. They're good liars. <clears throat> but anyway, um, so we did five years of, of Mars missions with NASA. And today we're doing mostly moon missions. They're much shorter and the delay in the communication is only three seconds. So it's like a bad phone call. Um, now, why am I doing all this? It's, it's mission number three. <laughs> mission number three is to make a backup of life by going to other planets. And uh, <clears throat> I believe that this is, a, <clears throat> this is not just my mission. It's a mission of all of humanity 
and is the mission of Mother, uh, of Mother Nature. If you look at life, life survives in every possible place on earth where it can survive. Mm. If there's any possibility at all that life survives, it is there. And I could say the same thing about humans. Humans pretty much live in any place that they can live. You know, the most extreme, like coldest places, the hottest places, the wettest places, the most dangerous places. We are everywhere. So we're kind of mimicking life. But here's, here's the thing. All of life as we know it is on this planet, as far as we know. And so if something happens to this planet, it's the end of life as we know it. So in order to, for life to survive, and the reason, by the way, that it lives in all those extreme environments is so that we can go to other planets and bring life as we know it to other planets. Once we do that, I believe that this period that we're going through now, which, uh, which is, I, I, I kind of think that Mother Earth is pregnant and she's, she's having, you know, those symptoms. But as soon as she has a baby, everything will go back to normal. <clears throat> now, how will that happen? When we go to another planet, this is called colonization. If we colonize another planet, historically, <clears throat> no colony has ever survived on this planet that waited for resupply from the home, home planet. We are going to have to live off the land on the other planets or wherever we're going. And that means we are going to have to become very, very good at uh, circular economy, because we're not going to find another earth, you know, with all of this stuff that, that nature gives us, we have to create that stuff there to survive. So <clears throat> we will learn so much about, about reusing everything because waste, there will not be such a thing as waste on the moon. It's too valuable. Mm -hmm. You know, it costs a million dollars a kilo to send something uh, to the moon. You are not going to throw anything out. And so we learn about packaging. We learn about how to, how to get back all the nutrients from the food that we eat. All the water will have to be recycled. Everything. Not a, we, we can't leave anything outside. It's all got to be reused. <clears throat> and that technology will help us figure out how to do it here. I mean, just look at solar panels. It came, they came out of the space industry mm. to power satellite. And today they are starting to power the world. So it's that kind of thing that we're going to discover by living on other planets that we're going to need when we, uh, how can I say, fix this planet. Wow. That's beautiful. So high seas is basically simulating Mars missions and now missions to the moon, which is a beautiful way because I never saw it like this. I, I have, personally, I have a love-hate relationship with space travel. Part of it is because of the way the rockets go into space. There's an enormous amount of carbon dioxide that is emitted. Um, the carbon almanac says it'll take a normal car to about, uh, I think, 200 million years to emit the amount of carbon dioxide that the SpaceX Falcon Heavy would emit in just a few minutes. But the way you're talking about it pretty much brings a lot more rigor to the thinking. And so it's not just about travel. Now it's becoming about transferring life and colonizing and 
seeing ways that we can start to do this do this thing sustainably which which brings my next question is there a way that we can travel to space sustainably without emitting so much carbon or what are your thoughts around that of course absolutely you know like uh i i don't know what percentage but a huge percentage of what um they used to get the space shuttle into space was hydrogen hydrogen can power a rocket you know the fact that we're using fossil fuel is just a little bit of our laziness right now because it's easier and and historically it didn't matter but going forward for example if we go to the moon we are not going to find any hydrocarbons on the moon to make rocket fuel but we are going to find hydrogen we find water on the moon all we need to do to water or ice is electrolysis and then we can create hydrogen which is a rocket fuel so for taking off from the moon or even having a gas station in low earth orbit with um gasoline or whatever you want to call it with energy from from the moon that's hydrogen you know when a rocket goes up 95% of what you're lifting is fuel so just think about that 5% payload if you could build a payload in space or take off that rocket from the moon now we're talking about a fraction of the amount of energy needed for the lift and you've got hydrogen as a as a fuel which is completely sustainable because it basically it's water oh well you make me want to go to space now might visit hawaii <laughs> uh thank you so much that's um that's incredibly helpful and i think it I take a deep breath knowing that well it's not the end and we don't have to emit that much carbon traveling to space and we can actually explore space and other planets sustainably so that's that's incredibly beautiful news to me uh and I think our audience would love to hear that as well thank you If you allow me Hank I would like to go back to the Blue Planet Foundation because uh, you said a couple of things that I just I think it's fascinating because you say that we have the money, we have the technology, and then you just added something uh that we are lazy. And um I would like yeah, I would like you to go back to the uh if you don't mind to go back to the Blue Planet Foundation and walk us through the process of of uh, your of lobbying um the Hawaii government, I believe, uh to introduce the 100 renewable energy law you know what was the process because i believe that there's a lot of um, a lot of um, fight to convince people that uh they we have the technology we have the money and you're lazy basically is what you said i mean you didn't say that but this well, is I, I, i didn't say <laughs> you didn't i didn't tell you know it's 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 no point in uh telling somebody that they're lazy because if you tell somebody they're lazy then basically it's the end of the conversation who wants to tell who wants to listen to somebody that just told them that they're lazy you know no you've got to treat people with respect so i i remember you know talking to the utility and say we should do this and they kind of in a greenwashing way said yeah we should do it but they actually didn't do anything you know they just say they're going to do something blah 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 this is called this is called greenwashing mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a nice story but nothing happened 
I remember talking to the governor at the time and the governor said, boy, uh, you're trying to do this, but you don't know anything about this. You have no idea what my problem is. You know, as, as I'm, I'm trying to run a state here, uh, you know, you think about climate change, but I'm thinking about security. Mm -hmm. What happens if something happens and my, my supply of uh, oil uh, is stopped somehow? It's a tanker goes down or the conflict somewhere. And uh, she said, uh, we have 26 days of fuel. And after that, the lights go out. So, so that's my concern. Um, and anyway, I said, okay, that's fine. But I think that's probably another reason why we should switch to renewables because they, you know, once we get them going, they never go off. You don't need any supplies from out, from outside. Um, but the, and the and politicians in general at that time, when we were getting started, um, the biggest company in Hawaii was the electric company mm -hmm. and they still are the biggest company in Hawaii. Hawaii spends uh, for, just for electricity, $2 billion of oil and a billion dollars of coal. Just to give you well, an idea how much money you yeah. spend on fossil fuels. That's a lot, yes. Yeah. A million and a half people spending $3 billion on, on That's fuel. That's a lot, yeah. Uh, so they had a lot of political clout. Mm. It was our lobbyists versus their lobbyists. And of course, they have way more money than we do. We don't have any money compared to them. And uh, so, yeah, it was difficult. Uh, what, <clears throat> what we needed to do is get the people on our side. Once the people get on our side, uh, then uh, they push their politicians and then the politicians could get on our side. But how do we get the people on our side? You know, it's like uh, you talk to somebody and say, why is this my problem? Mm -hmm. You know, in Hawaii, we don't have pollution because they, they put the power plant on the end of the island so when the wind blows, it blows all of the smell, all of the pollution out to sea. So it's not our problem. We just make it somebody else's problem. And uh, so we decided that we were going to reach the people through the children. Mm. The children who actually need to uh, have their future, protect their future. <laughs> and uh, I was recently in, in Korea and, and somebody asked me, so what policy should we pass? A politician asked me this, and I said, um, you should tell your children the truth, and then you should ask your children what you should do. Because if you, if you tell an adult uh, the, the truth, first of all, sometimes they won't believe it because mm. they have their own belief system. But second of all, they'll, they'll have all kinds of reasons why they can't make the change or they're too busy or so on and so forth or they're how can i say listening to the other side of the news the news that comes from the oil companies that says yeah we don't need to make this change right away mm. we, we have time the oil companies and the electric companies want us to take as much time as possible mm. so they can make as much money as possible to make the change that we have to mm -hmm. make and it just means that, that we have much more difficult job putting things back at the end of the day. So they are making a problem for us because they don't care about what happens to their, the, the result of their product, which is carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. They really don't care. Mm -hmm. they, just, they just care about the money. I mean, what good is money if you trash the planet? 
It's like, what good is money if you can't breathe? You know, we need oxygen. We don't need carbon dioxide. And so it's, a, it's, it's so like ridiculous to, for, for uh, companies or people to, to think that money is more important than the environment. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. Uh, we should put them in a, in a room and make them use up their oxygen and see which they'd rather have, money or <laughs> yeah. oxygen. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I like it. I like very much uh, what you say. That's you know, children. Actually, I really believe that children. At the end of the day, children's all the decision maker in the family, and that's a transition to Dan's question. Hi, Hank. I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to talk to you, and thanks for giving me your time today. Um, I'm studying video games digital art course at Birmingham City Uni, and I found out something quite interesting about um, how video games are linked with sustainability on the planet. So for me, um, I think gaming, yeah. it's, a, it's a window into the future, how we will be living yeah. in the future. You know, today we live in mostly in the real world, but in the future, it's very possible that we're living mostly in the virtual world. And if we live in the virtual world, when we buy something, like buy clothing or buy a car or buy a house, whatever it is that we, uh, that we buy and to show off to our friends about how great yeah. we are, which is why we buy clothes, which is why we buy bigger cars and live in bigger houses, is just to show off to our friends. Yeah. This is all about status. But if we gain our status by virtual objects, then at the end of life of that virtual, virtual object, there is no garbage. You know, everything that we, every piece of clothing that we buy turns into garbage. Uh, every, every object yeah. that we buy turns into garbage. And so this is the big problem. We, we, we mine resources and we create garbage. That's basically what we do. In a virtual world, we don't need to do that. When we're done with our object, when it's lost its value, uh, then we can just say, it's gone. And there's no trace left behind. So I really think that in the future, if we can get our status by, you know, something in the virtual world, that's much, much better than something gaining status with an object in the real world. Okay. I think as one of many first year video games art students, um, I was wondering what kind of advice you could have for going forwards into the gaming industry regarding this sustainability problem. Um, yeah, think about um, what gives you status in a game. And uh, I, would, I would love for you to gain status in a game by doing something good instead of by killing somebody. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, this, there's, there's so much, um, how can I say, violence in video games. And I think this is just because the audience is young boys who are going through their rite of passage to become an adult. And they think that, uh, that by showing their ability to, I don't know, outkill somebody else, that that is a form of status. Yeah. But I, I think we need to change that status to, uh, how can I say, doing good in the world. I'm, I'm working on a, on a, you want to call it a game, that's okay. It's certainly 
I'm using it, uh, my my how can I say my background as a as a game designer. I, I created the first role playing game in Japan in 1983, just to give you some background. The game that I'm working on is is all in the real world. People ask me at the end of my speech, "What can I do?" Now I say, "I'm sorry, I don't know what you can do because I am me, and you are you." Only you can figure out what you can do and what you will do, and you should do that. But then I see people with puzzled look and they say, oh my God, they don't know where to start because the problems that they face are so big that you know, what can a single person do to fix such a huge problem? And so um, my game is I create a list of things for people to do. And in the beginning, there's also, I turn off a light in a uh, in a room where there's no people or pick up a piece of rubbish and put it in the rubbish can gives you one point. You yeah. do add up a bunch of single pointers and then you go up a level. When you go up a level, we give you bigger things to do. That's role playing. So you go up levels uh, and then we give you those big, you do a bunch of those and you go up another level. Now, one way to make points is by doing the actions that you find on our list of things to do. But the other thing that you can do, which is making you more points, is you can create things to do for other people. And if you create a thing to do for other people that is sticky and a lot of other people do it, you get a lot of points. So then it becomes a competition to see who can make the most sticky or the most actionable actions. And then we can look at the actions and we can do a calculation. What's the, like, carbon footprint reduction of that action. Uh, and, and then we start being able to calculate how many people are doing some action and so on. And then the idea is that when you get to level five or level six, then you get benefits in the real world. Like you get to buy tickets first for the next concert. So you get the best seats. Or you get um, considered for a promotion first. In, in your company, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that in the beginning, it, it will be like a game, uh, but at the end, it'll be become very serious. And uh, the actions that you do, the AI watches which actions you choose, and so it predicts what action you're most likely to do next. So the AI will lead you to whatever your field of interest is and make you a hero in that direction. Okay. This one page on the carbon almanac about computing and carbon. For example, it says it says that one hour of playing Fortnite on Xbox X. I'm not a game player, so I have no idea what it is, but uh, it's equivalent of 27 LED bulbs per hour. But... If you play the same game on PlayStation 5, it's equivalent to about 40 LED bulbs per hour. And yeah, and then the other thing is that uh, the vast majority of games being played are played on mobile phones. Mm, yeah. So they're not being played on Xbox or, you know, PlayStation or Nintendo. Mm -hmm. uh, they're playing, playing on mobile yeah. phones because everybody has a mobile phone. Not everybody has a uh, game machine. So, uh, yeah, and it, yeah, LED bulbs, that's interesting. You know, in, in I live off-grid yeah. on the big yeah, island. Well. Uh, and in my house here, I'm off-grid. 
So it's very strange because, you know, in my game, it says turn off a light in the room where there's no people. But in my house, it makes no difference mm -hmm. because <laughs> I'm off grid. Yeah. So I'm not creating any carbon dioxide by leaving the lights on. So it's very strange, you know, because I have this habit of turning off the lights, but then I realize, oh, wait, it doesn't make a difference because actually when you think about it, the amount of energy which is landing on this planet is huge. Yes. And, and, and we spend most of our, our fossil fuel fighting against this energy that's coming at us yeah. by, by refrigeration and, and air, air conditioning. It's like, use that energy. That energy is raining down on us. Uh, and, and, and it's like, wow, our reaction is so strained. And by the way, I think that the future is not wind and solar. I think the future is geothermal. Geothermal is sourced from the heat of mm -hmm. the center of the earth, which has been around since the beginning of the planet. It's not going away anytime mm -hmm. soon. There is it boundless. We just have to learn how to dig a little deeper. Mm -hmm. and, and this is the thing. This is the thing. We, we've learned how to dig deeper for oil mm -hmm. in like crazy places, like, in, you know, over two miles of ocean down through the ocean floor. And it's like, are you kidding me? That is such a technologically complicated thing. And, and yet we have geothermal, which is like, there's a whole ring of fire. All the places that have volcanoes in the world, you just have to dig down and, and send down water and get back steam. How hard is that? Oh my gosh. You know, I've been to Iceland. It's, it's amazing what we do. It's, it's, it's just absolutely amazing. And if you don't have geothermal, then use the geothermal somewhere else to make hydrogen, then bring the hydrogen to wherever you are, and then use the hydrogen. Mm. Because the side product of hydrogen combustion or in a fuel cell is water. You know, why? Who doesn't need water? Everybody needs water. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, and it's like perfectly circular. So you make the hydrogen, you get back water, and then somewhere else you make hydrogen some more and you get back water. It's like, yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Brian, do you want to take the, the last part? Yes, I would love to. Um, yeah, uh, very excited to do so. Uh, Hank, wow, I, uh, so many amazing topics here. I focus some of my collegiate study on memetics and I really love, I want to learn more about this game idea of getting users to create contagious memes that are like climate positive ideas that they're getting other people to go out there and do them that are improving status. I loved your comment about achieving status in a more low impact example, you know, for example, like digital fashion versus status achieved through conspicuous consumption in the physical world as it often is done in ways that are particularly climate impacting, flying around the world, huge houses, parties, clothes, lots of disposable possessions, et cetera. I'm curious of your thoughts on how all of us and our listeners as individual contributors and influencers in our own social circles can help lean into that trend towards status achieved through digital means as opposed to conspicuous consumption in the physical world. Any thoughts? I'm sure you have many thoughts. Well, many thoughts. Uh, so um, 
I would like people to uh, gain status by how much they are doing that helps the future of humanity and nature. That should be the ultimate status. Because if you're gaining your status by consuming and destroying nature, that should be anti-status. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working on a rating system and the rating system basically tells you how good a product or a company is for the future of humanity and nature. Right now, when you go to buy something on Amazon or whatever, you get five stars. And five stars tells you if somebody was happy with that product, which means that they, they, they got value for their money. But it tells you nothing about how good that product is and what went into making that product. What is the supply chain that created that product? Um, so, you know, clothing, oh my gosh, horrible, horrible supply chain issues all over the world. The dyes are being let, let go into rivers in India. And there, I mean, it's like countless things. And it's, it's all about looking better. Looking better is such a, such a, a slow, how can I say, what's the word? It's such a temporary phenomenon. Because like a month later or a year later, it's looked like, oh, that's last year's fashion. You know, I used to wear all kinds of t-shirts with different things written on them. And now I'm down to one t-shirt. It's got a silver lining. Mm. Uh, and so what it means is that I can wear it for a week without it smelling at all. Antimicrobial. Right, right. Antimicrobial, yes. So now I wear a black t-shirt and it's antimicrobial. So I don't have to change my shirt. That, I mean, that's a huge amount of laundry and I've stopped accepting t-shirts from people or buying t-shirts. So, I mean, that's the way that was my fashion thing because I stopped wearing a suit a long, long time ago. I, I'm over it. Yeah. So, so it's just a matter of thinking and, and people don't look at me and expect a fashion statement, even though even though, by the way, I do. I have a, I have a couple of jackets, and I threw paint on my jacket, and people go, "Wow, where did you get the jacket?" And it's actually it's just an old jacket, and I threw paint on it. <laughs> and so it's funny how you can create fashion statement without buying new stuff. You know, you can recycle your old clothes by by adding some flavor to it or something. You, you don't have to go out and buy. And by the way, if you do it yourself. That is way more status than if you have somebody else do it for you. You know, if, if you buy a jacket that's look like that, it's like, okay, well, you spent a lot of money on this. Yeah. But if you did it yourself, all more, right. oh, you are an artist or, you, you know, it's all the more status. So, you know, it's funny how, how me going backwards and not wanting to buy new stuff. Whereas I have a jacket that someone else threw paint on down in New Orleans that I met the artist. I'm so excited to meet this guy. And so when I wear it, I can tell people about this cool guy I met. But all the better if I did it. I agree. That's yeah. Well, you know, and you know, all the better if you took your jacket and said, can you throw that paint on my jacket? And then you yeah. get that jacket like another 10 years. I also want to return to one of the other comments you made a, a short bit ago. I'm curious of, of the perspective you have, having worked with government bodies and corporations, as to like how we can help enforce some type of more holistic measurement of our impacts. So the example you used was the factory with the fumes sort of floating out 
they put it on the windward side. So it like floated out over the ocean. So it, we, it didn't bother us, right? In quotation marks. Um, so how yeah. do we yeah. get our, how do we make our choices as consumers, citizens, corporations, cultures, like how do we get ourselves to look at that kind of decision of where we place this factory and what even the factory creates in that more holistic fashion? Is it about a, a big multinational, international kind of governing body? Is it about countries? Is it about states? Is it about communities? Is it about people? Is it about consumer choice? Your rating thing suggests consumer choice. Like, I'm really curious how you think about that. Yeah, it's, it's about transparency. So the rating system uh, is meant to, to create transparency. So the, where we get our data is from over 500 uh, rating certificates by different agencies around the world that look at different things like fair labor practice or toxic ingredients or you know, all of these things. Somebody's looking at them and we incorporate that into the rating system. Now, if you know uh, what the rating of a product or a service is, like we're just about to do bookings.com, I will know exactly which hotel is eco-friendly and which one is not. Yeah. Then I make the choice. You know, I have the choice and I and yeah. guarantee young people are going to make that choice. And if people make that choice, then companies have to change yeah. to cater to that choice. In the future, and when things are getting better or worse, nobody will buy stuff from a company that's a polluting company. That's just like unthinkable. Why would you do that? You're contributing to the problem. It's right now we're contributing to the problem because we just don't know. Most people just don't know when they buy something, they have no idea how did this product get here and where is it going after its end of life? You know, this if this plastic object, we knew that it was going to break up into tiny pieces and it's going to end up in the ocean and it's going to become part of our diet when we eat fish. You wouldn't use that bottle of shampoo in the hotel. Oh, right. And so by, by making this transparency, and by the way, Europe just did an amazing thing. They passed a law against greenwashing. Yeah. It's sort of like our FDA stuff, but on, yeah. Greenwashing. So it, in other words, a company cannot t tell the public about their own product because they're they're freaking going to lie. Then they're just going to tell part of the truth. They're going to say, oh, well, we did this and we did this. And uh, they're not going to talk about what they did over here. Mm -hmm. They're only going to talk about the good news. What we need is, is somebody to look at that company and their products and say, you know what? This is what's going on. This is the truth. And, and based on that truth, consumers can make decisions yeah. and then companies have to follow. And that's just uh, you know, that's just the way we need to move yeah. forward. Oh, uh, amazing. Transparency. Um, last question, I promise. Um, professionally, I, I do a lot of real <laughs> estate transactions involving wind, solar, geothermal, as you said, and the related sort of power storage projects. And there's a few different forms that takes. Um, I'm curious of your perspective on where we are on this sort of curve or, or direction towards a tipping point that these kind of projects will like make total fiscal sense, even without any subsidies. And like, they'll, it'll become a self-fulfilling pattern that anyone developing something says, I will do it this way first. Well, if you take Hawaii as an example, because Hawaii was first, uh, in my world anyway, um, we 
basically had a plan to achieve 40% renewable energy by 2030 on the path to 100%. We have already reached 40% renewable energy. Wow. Yeah. So it, we went from it's impossible to, of course, we're doing this. I remember being on a panel and I said, we're going to go 100% renewable by 2045. And the guy sitting next to me says, I'm a scientist. I researched this at the University of Hawaii. There is no way we can go 100% by 2045. Mm. And I said, well, I'm not as smart as this guy, so I'm going to do it anyway. Because I don't know that I can't. <laughs> yeah. And we are killing it. We changed the business model of the utility so they yeah. make more money. They Guess what? They're our best friends yeah. now. They sound like us when they talk. You know, it's just the, the whole mindset has changed to, to yeah, it costs them 25 cents per kilowatt hour for oil. It costs them eight cents per kilowatt hour for wind and solar. If you add, if you add storage, it's mm -hmm. up to 12 cents. And wind and solar is expensive in Hawaii because they have to bring all that stuff to Hawaii from a long way. And, and land is expensive and labor mm -hmm. is expensive. But if you go to other places in the world, like Texas, they can buy wind. The utility can buy wind for less than two cents yeah. per kilowatt hour. We're, we've done wind projects down there. There is yeah. no way that there's no way that fossil fuel can compete with that. And we, I mean, the world, spend seven trillion dollars a year subsidizing fossil fuel. In what yeah. universe does that make any sense? Yeah, uh, subsidize renewable at yeah. the same amount. What the fossil fuel industry does is it gets subsidized, makes record profits, and then gives us a massive, massive cleanup job at the end of the day that taxpayers are going to have to pay for. That's just not fair. I want to I see if you're willing to go out and give a prognostication. When do you think we'll be at that tipping? And maybe you're saying we're, we're nearly there. When do you think... The people who are creating energy producing projects, right, whether in whatever form that is, whatever kind of power plant form that is, they'll be choosing renewables broadly. We'll have reached our tipping point where it continues to accelerate. And maybe we're already there. In the well-to-do countries, we are already there. Okay. You know, like in, in all of the first world countries, we're already there. Places like India and China, where they're still catching up, where they still have people that are behind the curve, uh -huh. the poverty curve, um, that say we have to lift our people up before we can actually think about uh -huh. climate change. Uh -huh. We have to think about that. How do we raise those people up to the point where they're not surviving? Right. Because a person that survives will do anything to survive, you know, in including set a building on fire or whatever. Yeah. If you have, that's what it takes to survive, you will survive. So we've got to get people out of survival mode. You know, and that's sort of where the imbalance of, uh, how can I say, money uh, in the world, that kind of leads to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to d redistribute the money in the world. I would love it if things just became a little bit more expensive mm. and that everybody could have a living wage. Um, that would be great, you know, so everybody could have a job or, uh, but uh, how do, how do we achieve that? We have created such a machine where, where some people make so much money 
that they couldn't possibly spend it in their the rest of their lives. I mean, and what's that again? What's the money for? If you used your money, this is the way I feel about it. If you use your, if you made money, you should use your money and your ability to fix something about the world that's broken. Yes. That's your responsibility. Yeah. That's that's where you need to go. Don't die with your money. Don't give it to your kids. They will. It just ruins their lives. Give your kids a house. Give your kids an education, and then use your ability and your money to fix. I don't care if it's climate change or if it's plastic in the ocean or if it's women's equality. I don't care what it is. Figure out what's broken in your mind and go and fix that because you can. And if you can then it's your responsibility to do that. That's amazing. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Oh, Hank, you've given us such a rich feast of ideas and challenges and, and solutions. And it's been really, really good to spend this time with you. So one of the things I heard was that we've got the money, we've got the technology, we have to make a decision. And that's, that's a, a real good takeaway. If we want to find out more about the work that you're doing, about the the different initiatives that are there, where's the best place to to jump into that? I mean, because there was lots of links. We'll put a bunch of stuff in in the episode notes. But is there one place that you would send people to find out more about? Um, I I don't do a lot of uh, efforts to upkeep it, but there's a HankRogers.com, <laughs> and that's it's spelled H-E-N-K-R-O-G-E-R-S.com. And then, uh, of course, there's the Blue Planet Alliance. And I think that that's, the, uh, that's sort of more on the forefront of what I'm doing right now and trying to get done. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for being here. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Aloha. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network, for more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of The Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.